that we looked at last week. We're going to continue these verses. There's a lot here. 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. We just sang that before the throne of God above, we have a strong, a perfect plea. It is Jesus Christ, the righteous, and this is who John is speaking about, that as believers, that we have an advocate who is with the Father, who is there to represent his people. And John, as he's writing this, says, brothers and sisters, I don't want you to sin. I'm writing this, and I want you to know this. I don't want you to sin, but if you do sin, may you know this, that you have an advocate who is with the Father, and he is the one who has made propitiation for our sins. A big word, but it means and has the idea to appease, to to satisfy for the holiness of God that we have offended, his law that we have broken, and that Jesus himself in his offering on the cross has made satisfaction and God therefore is satisfied with what he has done and therefore we are made right with him. And so he has turned away God's wrath. He has absorbed it in himself so that we are free We are reconciled to him. This is the wonderful truth of what John is getting across here, this one who is our advocate, the way in which he intercedes for us and is our advocate is that it is he himself who has made propitiation for our sins. And this is a wonderful truth of the gospel of what Christ has done for us. But today as we look at this verse, I want to consider this again because there are some things I didn't get to say last week that I was hoping to. This verse, I believe, these two verses pertain to the nature and also, I think, the extent of the atonement of Christ. This is a a vast subject. This is going to be a sermon. We're going to cover a lot of things. So I'm asking you to put on your thinking caps. And I also am asking you uh, to move quickly because we're going to be going through a lot of things, covering a lot of things in this sermon. And I want you to be a Berean. Some of this stuff may be new to some of you. For others, I hope it will be a refreshment and encouragement to us that we will see the glory and the beauty of Christ and what he has done for us. And that, as the psalmist says, Great are the works of the Lord, and they are studied out by all those who delight in them. So I I want us, again, to put our thinking caps on and think about God's word and the things he has revealed. Some of these things hard and, and, and difficult, but pray that we will be those who seek to learn, be Bereans. But above all of this, it is my prayer, it's my earnest desire that Christ is lifted up. And when the gospel, when Christ is lifted up, it always leads, it ought to lead to doxology. It ought to lead to the renewing of our hearts, a renewing of our love for, for Christ and for what God has done for us. 
And so that is my prayer. And I've entitled this The Successful Savior. The Successful Savior. I want to begin with an illustration. We've talked in the earlier part of 1 John about moles and moths. Today we're going to talk about professional baseball players and plumbers. All right. All right, so here's, here's the question. Is Jesus Christ more like a professional baseball player or like a plumber? All right? Interesting question there. I've used this before. Some of you already answered it. What is the intent and the purpose of a professional baseball player when he gets up to, the, to bat? His purpose, his intent, is to hit the ball when it is pitched to him. All right? That's his purpose, to get ahead. Trouble is, they don't always get ahead. In fact, if you can hit the ball three out of ten times, you're a superhero. And you get paid a lot of money. Pete Rose said, what other sport can you fail so often and be a hero? (laughs) Three out of ten times. Ty Cobb has the record. I think he batted for 27 years. 366 was his batting average. That's less than four times out of ten hitting the ball. Now, think about your plumber. He comes to your house. You've had frozen pipes over the winter. He comes to your house. You've got ten leaking pipes. What is his purpose when he comes? His purpose is to fix how many of the pipes? Ten of them, all right? Now, if he does his work and he leaves and he says, listen, I I got five out of the ten fixed. That's better than Ty Cobb, but I did my best. We would not be happy with that, would we? And that's not what he came to do. He came to fix all of the pipes. As we think about the work of Jesus Christ, the question I ask is, is he more like the professional baseball player or is he more like the plumber? And so today we are addressing a topic, and it is this question, and and it relates to these verses, for whom did Christ die and make propitiation for their sins? This is what John is writing to these, his little children. I'm writing to you, we have an advocate with the Father. He is the righteous one, and he himself is, he is the propitiation for our sins. Now, there are different ways in which people have looked at this within the Christian church. There are those who say that Jesus made a universal propitiation, meaning that Christ died and he made propitiation for the sins of all men without exception. And this is often a verse that will be used to support that view. And therefore, the purpose and the intent of Jesus was to die and to make all men savable, to turn away the wrath of God in a potential way, but it's conditioned upon their believing. Whoever will believe, then this will be true of them. But Jesus did make propitiation for all men without exception. So at the end of the day, this would be like the baseball player. Not everyone is propitiated. Not everyone has their sins turned away, only those who believe in Jesus. But he did uh, make them savable. The second one is particular propitiation. And that is the view and the understanding that Christ died and he made propitiation for the sins of those 
that were given to him by the Father from among Jews and Gentiles, from among the nations. And thus the cross work of Christ was designed for an innumerable number of people from all of the nations, and he actually laid down his life for them. He actually made propitiation. He actually turned away the wrath of God for those that had been given to him by his father. So he actually saves. He actually removes their sins. So at the end of the day, this one, I think, would be like the plumber. So this is what we're going to be discussing today. It's a heavy subject, but I hope you'll stay with me. What are the issues at hand? For those that hold to a particular propitiation, which I do, the question is then, as we look at this verse, how is it that Jesus makes propitiation for the whole world? Because John says that. So we'll get to that. But here's the question for those that say that Jesus made a propitiation for all men, all women, without exception, who have ever lived, that he made propitiation for them, here's the question we have to ask. Jesus, uh, John says here that he is, he is the propitiation for our sins and also for the whole world. And that means that he has turned away the wrath of God. So if God has turned away away his wrath against all people without exception, then how would anyone go to hell? If God made a full satisfaction, turned away his wrath, removed his wrath, then how would anyone go to hell? As the Bible clearly tells us that there is a judgment and an eternal hell. I found this statement by John Owen in his book, The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And he says this, that if Christ died for all the sins of all men... Why then are not all freed from the punishment of all their sins? That would stand to reason. He goes on and he says, well, you will say because of their unbelief. They will not believe. But his unbelief, is it a sin or not? If not, why should they be punished for it? If it be, if it be a sin, then Christ underwent the punishment due to it, or he did not. If so, then why must that hinder them more than their other sins for which he died from partaking of the fruit of his death? If he did not, then did he not die for all their sins? Let them choose which part they will. So here is the issue then. If he died for all men without exception and Christ paid and turned back the wrath of God, how is it that anyone could suffer in hell for those very sins that he made propitiation for? We call that double jeopardy, don't we? That it would be a payment twice for sin. And uh, so that is a problem. Another problem that we find here is that John says that Jesus is an advocate, and he's an advocate by his propitiation. So would Jesus be an advocate for all those that he made propitiation for? And I think based upon that, we would have to say, no, he's he's an advocate for those that he has made propitiation for. All right, well, let's go secondly to scriptural support for 
Christ's death as a particular atonement. That's the way I'm presenting this. And I believe this is what the scripture says. Now, these are hard things. It took me a long time in my Christian life to come to this. Most of us were raised that Jesus Christ made a general, universal uh, redemption for all men without exception. So I understand if you have some issues here, but I want us to come to the scriptures. First question is, or the statement is, what was, what was the nature of Christ's mission? What was the purpose for which Jesus Christ came into this world as a savior? Well, at the very beginning of the incarnation and the birth of Jesus Christ, we have a statement given by the angel to Joseph. You are to name this baby that is born to Mary. You are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's quite a statement. And I think we have in there the capsule of the redemptive work of Christ. He will save. He's he's not going to try to save, but he is going to save. And save from what? He's going to save from sin. And who is he going to save? He's going to save his people from their sins. So there's a specific people that are in view. There's a specific work that he is going to save them, and he's going to save them from their sins. Well, in the middle of Jesus' public ministry, we hear him saying these words in John 6. I have not come to do my own will, but I have come to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the one who sent me, that all that he has given to me, that I'm going to raise them up in the last day. Jesus understands that the Father has deposited with him, given to him a people, and his purpose is to save them and to raise them up in the last day such that none of them, not one of them, will be missing. So this is on the mind of Jesus as he is publicly ministering. It's on the mind of Jesus as he's going to the cross Brian read for, uh, for us from John 17 is a wonderful prayer of Jesus, our high priest, as he is praying just before he is going to the cross. And what is on the mind? What is on the heart of Jesus Christ as he is going to the cross? Well, we are given insight here in his prayer. What is on his heart? And Jesus, as he prays, He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son with the glory that I had with you before the world began. You have given me authority over all flesh, that out of all that you have given to me, that I may give unto them eternal life, that I will give to them eternal life. You've given them to me. Here's a people that you have given to me, and I am to give to them eternal life. That is why I'm going to the cross. That is what I am going to do. Well, who are these people? We read this morning in our affirmations of faith in Ephesians 1. They are people that God has predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Christ. He chose them before the foundation of the world that they should be holy and blameless before him. Christ will redeem them. They will be adopted. It's a people that no man can number. 
And maybe we may struggle with that, but we have to go to the scriptures and say, are these things true? And I believe that's clearly what Paul says there in Ephesians 1. And as we think of the mission of Christ, his mission was not to make men savable. That's what a lot of people think. That salvation that he provided was to make sinners just savable, a potential salvation. But I don't think that's what we find as we read the scriptures. What we find is that Jesus Christ has come to actually save, actually save sinners, to redeem them. Paul says that this is a trustworthy statement that Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, among whom I'm the chief. In the context of little Zacchaeus, when Jesus went to his house, he said, as he sees this man has come to faith and has confessed Christ and has come to follow Christ, he says there that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. He's come to seek and to save that which was lost. So, as we think about the mission of Jesus, is it more like the baseball player or is it more like the plumber, a good plumber? Which one? Well, I want to look now at, this is the, the nature of his mission. What is, what is the effectual nature of Christ's sacrifice? What we see woven throughout the New Testament is what did Jesus accomplish on the cross? Did he just make men savable, or did he actually save a people that the Father had given to him when he went to the cross? Did he actually save them? So we're going to rush through these things. I've got a lot of verses there. You can look at them on your own, but I'll mention some of them. The first is this. When we think about the work of Christ, it is referred to as a substitutionary atonement. What do we think about when we think about a substitute? It's someone that stands in the place of another. So a basketball player comes off of the court, another one goes in and takes his place. Christ's death is a substitutionary atonement. And what we find, I believe, is that he actually made substitutionary, a substitutionary sacrifice for all those that the Father had given to him without fail. Listen to these words that we quote every time we partake of the Lord's Supper the first Sunday of the month. Jesus said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant, and it is my blood that has been shed for many for the remission of sin. This is the cup, this new covenant, and it is shed for many for the remission of sin. John 10, 11, listen to the good shepherd, what he says. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the what? The sheep. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the the sheep. Now, Jesus is going to say in Matthew 25 that in the last day, there will be the separation of what? The sheep and the goat. The sheep and the goat. Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. He does not say, I lay down my life for the sheep and the goat. But I lay down my life for the sheep. 
Tonight we're going to talk a little bit more about that. How does a sheep become a sheep? So we'll talk about that tonight. 2 Corinthians, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Paul's writing to the church. We need to understand that as we read through the epistles. He made him, the one who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Ephesians 5, 25, a verse I hope all of us as husbands know. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved what? The church and what? Gave himself for her. He gave himself for her. He purchased her. He was her substitute as he went to the cross. We just sang earlier, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. She is his new creation by water and the word. From heaven, from heaven he came and he sought her to be his holy bride. And with his own blood, what did he do? He bought her. And for her life, he died. For her, he died in her place. So what we find in many of the verses that he was actually a substitute. He actually took the place of the guilty sinner and bore the price so that they could go free. Secondly, he actually reconciled God's elect. When we talk about reconciliation, it has this idea of alienation and separation, estrangement. There's a broken relationship. And to reconcile is to bring together, to restore, to unite, to mend the breach. Christ did that when he made reconciliation. He didn't make it something that was just a potential, but he actually accomplished this. Romans 5.10. For if when we were sinners or enemies, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Paul, writing to the church at Rome, to the believers there, says this, that we were formerly enemies, but at the cross, Christ reconciled us. He reconciled us. He established the grounds by which we are reconciled to God, all who belong to Christ. Colossians 1.21, Paul writing to the saints, the faithful brethren in Colossae, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled, how? In the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless, above reproach in his sight. Thirdly, we've talked about this last week, he actually accomplished propitiation for God's elect, those given to him by the Father. Propitiation presupposes that there is enmity and wrath, and propitiation has this idea of removing the cause of the wrath that is due to us by making satisfaction. He made a covering. He, 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 he took away our sin. He absorbed in himself the wrath of God so that we could be forgiven. And God is satisfied with the work of Christ and what he did. He actually made propitiation. 
We read, I think, last week, 1 John 4.10. Here in his love, not that we have loved God, but that he has loved us. John writing to the believers, he has loved us. And he has sent his son into the world to make propitiation for our sins. He did this for us. He did this for his people, for his church. We see see the same thing in Hebrews 2.17. Jesus partook of flesh and blood like we have. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and a faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. There, again, it's very clear that that he has done this for his people. He actually turned away the wrath of God. Fourthly, he actually redeemed and ransomed God's elect Ransom or redemption is the idea of being in bondage, being in captivity, and there's the payment of a price for the release of one who is maybe in debtor's prison or is a slave. And there is a payment that is made. A ransom is paid, and they are freed. They are actually redeemed and freed. Jesus himself says, Matthew 20, 28, I love this verse, the Son of Man did not come to be served. You know, we needed to be served. And he's the only one that could serve us in this way. We needed to be served. And he didn't come into this world to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. To actually give his life a ransom for many. Galatians 3.13, Christ has redeemed us, speaking to the church in, the Galatia, in Galatia, that Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. How did he do that? Having become a curse for us. He actually bore the curse of God in our place, in our stead. Paul says that you have been bought You've been bought with a price. He purchased you with his own blood. Peter says we weren't redeemed with perishable things like gold and silver, but with the precious blood of a lamb without blemish blemish and without spot. William Cowper in the song we sang, Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. It's been ransomed. The church has been ransomed. The price has been paid, and there is release. There is freedom that has been purchased by Christ. A book that I would recommend if you would like to read a book that deals with a subject that I found very helpful was John Murray, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. But he says this, What does redemption mean? It does not mean redeemability, that we are placed in a redeemable position. It means that Christ purchased and procured redemption. He actually procured it. This is the triumphant note of the New Testament whenever it plays on the redemptive chord. Christ did not come to put men in a redeemable position, but to redeem to himself a people. We have the same result when we properly analyze the meaning 
of expiation, of propitiation, and reconciliation. And we've just touched on those briefly this morning. I would encourage you to go through the New Testament and see all the places where those terms are used in reference to those who belong to Christ and those who are part of his church, those given to him by the Father. So the question is, we think about the work of Christ. Is he more like the baseball player? He gets three out of ten. Or the plumber who came and purposed to redeem and to save all of those that had been given to him by the Father. Well, we come back to 1 John and we see here the universal nature of Christ's particular atonement. And this is where often this verse is used to deny that Jesus gave his life for a particular people because John says he's the propitiation for our sins, the ones he's writing to, but also he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not only ours, but also for the whole world. So as we look at this word here, when we think of the statement that is made by John, could this mean something else than what we typically, most of us were raised in church thinking that the whole world refers to every person without exception. And I believe that that, that we can say that it is used that way in the Bible. In fact, I, I don't know that there's any place in the Bible where world is used, um, you have to check me on this, for every person without exception. Usually when the word world is used in the Bible, in the New Testament, it's used 186 times. Over 100 of those times, it's used by John. And it's used in a restricted sense. I'll give you a case. Turn over to chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 19. John himself here uses it in a restricted sense. And he says, we know that we are of God. And the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. Now, as John saying that even Christians, they're a part of the whole world, if that's the way we understand it, all men, all women, without exception, that they are under the sway of the wicked one? No. Paul's very clear that God has translated us out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. But here, world is used in a restricted way. It's a reference to those who are unbelievers, who do not know Christ, do not follow Christ. And they lie under the sway of the wicked one. And so we find it used in restricted ways, many many other ways in the New Testament. You remember the decree that went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. Did he mean, when he wrote that, when Luke wrote that, did he mean every single person that has ever lived or everybody, every single person that was living in the world in that day? Did it mean the American Indians here or those living in China? No, he was referring to the world of the Roman Empire under which Caesar ruled. And we have many instances of that, that it's used in a restricted way. One of those we read about in John 17. This is an amazing verse. Maybe you've never thought about this, but Jesus says, I am praying, Father, for those that you have given to me. I do not pray for the world. 
Wow. I do not pray for the world. I'm praying for those that you have given me out of the world and those who will believe through their name. Do you know if you're a believer, Jesus prayed for you that night as he went to the cross. It's an amazing thing to think about. He prayed for you. All those that would believe through the apostles' ministry as the gospel would go forth. But I don't pray for the world. Now, what world is that? Is that the whole world, every person without exception? Then he's not praying for anyone. No, it's, it's a world of those that have not been given to him by the Father, those who remain in their sin and their enmity against God. But he prays for those that the Father had given to him, but not for the whole world without exception. So as we look at this verse, I think, I think there's different ways that people understand this, but I think we can say that this is taking in view that the propitiation, the work of Christ, was not just for, for Jews, but it was also, in a sense, it was for people from all the nations. People without, not without exception, but with distinction, without distinction. John, we are told, was one of the apostles to the Jews. Paul was the missionary to the Gentiles. John primarily ministered among the Jews. And maybe many of his readers are Jews. And as John writes, he says, I want you to know this, you, you my little children, and your little churches where you are there. Know this, that Jesus made propitiation not just for Jews, he made propitiation for the whole world, for God's people throughout all the world. He has made a propitiation for them. He is a Savior who has come to redeem and save, save people from all the nations. Listen to these words of Jesus in John ten sixteen. I have had the one where, where Jesus says, I, I'm the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. And then he says this, I have other sheep that are not of this fold, all right? He's among the Jews, ministering among the Jews. I have other sheep that are not of this fold. And he goes on and he says this, I must bring them also. I love that. I must bring them. I'm not going to try to do that. I must bring them also. And they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and there will be one shepherd. I'm going to bring Jews and Gentiles, by my redemptive work, I'm going to bring them together in one flock, one fold, and I'm going to do this. I'm going to accomplish this. And so as we think about Jesus, he wasn't just a savior for the Jews. That's the way a lot of Jews thought. They had trouble in the book of Acts when the gospel's going and Gentiles are getting converted. Wait a minute. You know, those are the dogs. Those are the uncircumcision. They've got to become a Jew first. No, faith in Christ brings them into the body of Christ. And therefore, John, when he, John the Baptist, when he saw Jesus, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the Jews. No, he takes away the sin of the world. He's a redeemer for the world, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So listen to these words in Revelation 5.9. What is the song in heaven? What are the people of God that are in the presence of the Lord? What are they singing? Here's their song. Speaking of Christ, you are worthy to take the scroll, to open its seal, for you were slain, and you have redeemed us to God 
by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And I think that's what John is saying here. This is what Jesus has done. He has purchased us from among the nations, every tribe, nation, and tongue. He's, he has purchased us unto God from the nations, and to him be the glory. Now, there are some other views about how we might understand the world there, but I think, I think we would have trouble to say that Jesus made propitiation for all men without exception, bore the wrath of God in their place, and then God would judge them a second time in the person of the sinner. And so I think John is having us to see here that this salvation, this people of God, are from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Just real quick in closing, I know we've gone through a lot here. I hope you're still with me. Nobody's thrown anything yet, but I appreciate that. But again, I want to have you to consider, are these things true according to the word of God? What's the importance of this? Is this really important or is this just, you know, debating things that really don't matter? We should be more concerned about other things. I think they are important for several reasons. First of all, it secures glory to God alone. God is the one who saves. Salvation is of the Lord. And this has to do how we think about him. Does God succeed in what he has purposed to do? Or did he just try to do the best he could and he didn't really accomplish his ultimate purpose, but he'll take what he can get. But those that will cooperate with him, no. He will not fail in his mission. Everyone that has been given to Christ, he's going to raise up. Not one of them will be missing in the last day. God does not fall short of his mission Neither does Christ. And it upholds the glory and the fullness of Christ's work. He actually redeemed. He actually made propitiation. He actually reconciled. Jesus actually saved sinners. And Jesus got what he paid for. You ever go to the store and you come home and you look in your bags and not everything's in there? You're looking through the receipt. Well, I paid for this. You don't like that, do you? Well, here's the truth. I believe as we think of the atonement, Christ gets what he paid for. And he is a glorious savior in that he has accomplished that. He has brought that to pass. And then thirdly, it fosters worship and love towards God. What are they singing about in heaven He's purchased us to God. This is what Jesus did for us. And we're a collection of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue, and he has purchased us unto God and made us to be his, his people. And it's a song of salvation, a song of praise to this God who has done this. And as we think about this, this should humble us. Personally, we can say, if we are in Christ, that Jesus knew me when he went to the cross. And I can say with the Apostle Paul what he said in Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives 
in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. How does that end? Who loved me and gave himself for me. He loved me and he gave himself for me. He knew me by name as he went to the cross. And he laid down his life for me. Such love ought to constrain us that we would love him and serve him. It also, I think, promotes encouragement for evangelism. And you think, well, how in the world does it do that? Well, Paul was in Corinth. He was not having a good go of things there, and he was ready to leave. He was discouraged, and God said, Christ said, stay here, Paul. You stay here. You remain faithful. I have many people in this city. I have many people here. Stay at the task. It encourages us. Our hope is not in our wisdom and our abilities in evangelism. Our hope is that as we preach Christ, God is the one who will get that message to the hearts of men and women. Spurgeon said our, our job is to get the message from the Bible, from our mouth to their ears. It is God's job to get the message from their ears to their heart. And we can take encouragement in that. And then lastly, this humbles the pride of man, doesn't it? Who has made you to differ? If you're a believer, who has made you to differ? It's the grace of God, the sovereign grace of God. Therefore, there is no room for boasting. What do you have that you have not received? And it is all by God's grace and for his glory. All right, we'll come to the end. Thank you for staying with me. May God help us to understand and appreciate what Christ has done for us. Let's stand together. We'll be closed with a word of prayer.